The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is writer and attorney, Lara Bazelon. Uh, Laura, uh, we're going to be talking about her article, which was in the New York Times this uh, past September, New York Times article, From Divorce, A Fractured Beauty. Um, Laura says, happy families are not all alike, and neither are divorced ones. Laura, Bazelon, mother, writer, attorney, and former director of an innocent project based in Los Angeles, describes her own unique experience of divorce and co-parenting in this article. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Laura. Thank you. All right, so we're going to be talking about your article, which really caught my eye, first of all, and I think you and I had discussed this a little bit before the show, but... You know, I've been divorced for almost 30 years, and I looked at your article, and you talk about this kind of new way of divorcing, co-parenting. Uh, I, I wished I had kind of been privy to that 30 years ago. Um, it's a very different way, I think, of co-parenting children after divorce. So this is your story. Let's, let's, let's talk about it, um, starting with the article, because... Um, I, I guess my first question is, what motivated you to write the article? Well, it was interesting. The vacation itself was so improbable. My suggesting it, my ex-husband agreeing, us going, us staying the extra day because it went so well, that while I was there, I kept thinking, this is a story that maybe other people could benefit from. It's an unusual a little bit scary, risky thing to do, but it had this tremendous payoff. And so I thought if other people knew about this experience, maybe that would be something that would be helpful for them. Yeah, and I think it definitely is. And maybe we ought to go over that. You decided to take a vacation with your two children, your ex-husband. It had only been 18 months, as I understand it, since you were divorced. And go not, you know, the vacation included going to some isolated location on a beach with just the four of you. So that's pretty risky business. It was. And actually, the part that was not in the piece is that we had gone there before when we were married and it had gone badly. So it was, um, it didn't exactly hold happy memories, but we approached it very differently. We, we had, separated in January of 2014, and then the divorce had become final in March of 2015. And so we'd all had a chance to go through a rather difficult first year and then fall into a better pattern of being with each other the second year. And somehow in my mind, it seemed possible. So that is really how it came about. I, I suggested it, and then, and then he agreed, which I have to say I was a little surprised and then a little bit scared, too, about it. 
So, Laura, this, I, I, I mean, you know, maybe I'm putting words in your mouth, but really for the sake of the children so that they could experience being with both of you, actually and being with both of you under good conditions rather than all the bickering and the stuff and the animosity and I'll even say hatred that goes on before the divorce or during the divorce. That's right. I think it's important for kids to see their parents, even if they're not together, interacting as a family. And so then the question is, what does your family look like when the mother and father or mother and mother, father and father decide they can't live with each other anymore? Can you create a different reality for them where they can still have some of the same experiences of children in, I'll say in quotes, intact families? And that includes family vacations. So what do you think? Do you think it's everybody, if they take your kind of an attitude, could do that? Or is there something maybe special that you two were allowed to kind of uh, be able to sit down with each other, plan the vacation, you know, all the stuff that's involved, and not be get back into all those, you know, angry confrontations that I think most of us do or we wouldn't be getting divorced? Um, you know, how do you prevent yourself from getting back into that kind of stuff? Well, I think it's impossible to even consider it, at least in our situation, for 18 months. There was just absolutely no way in the beginning that this would have been possible. And we went through all of the kinds of terrible fighting and silences and difficulties that you could imagine people who were unhappily married going through in the first year of their divorce. So I don't want to give your listeners the impression that this is something that you just turn around the next week after you separate and kind of ride off to a nice place on the beach. But I think once you're both able to move through the stages that you move through when you give up on your marriage, and those include, I think, being extremely angry and sad and scared, and you can get to a place where you remember the good in the person, that you married them for a reason, you had children with them for a reason, and you can, in your heart, forgive them, not just intellectually, but feel that, then I think you can take the next step, which is to say, how do we move forward together as parents? How do we show love for each other? How do we be each other's friends? And once you're in that mindset, I think it is possible to try something like what we tried. And I'm not prescribing it at all for everyone. I think we were able to do it, though, in part because we had gone through all of the ugliness that you would expect people go through when they first separate and then divorce. Okay. So there's really no template for this. Um, and as you say in the article, there's no template for divorce. I mean, and in your case, in your family, as you say, I mean, there nobody was, I guess, nobody who was close to you had ever been divorced before, which was in my case, too, as well. So there was nothing kind of looking, well, now what do I do? Um, and so you kind of were out on your own, right? You had to, to, to come up with this idea. Um, how, did, how did your kids respond? I mean, did they feel, you know, sometimes I know with my kids, and I have three or all grown, but I always kind of felt like, ooh, they're going to like, they're waiting for us to start fighting again. Even if we're not, even if we don't, they're afraid that we're going to. I mean, because all, both of us always went to our children's events and music and sports and all of those kinds of things. But I always felt in the beginning they were a little bit on edge that, you know, all that, that fighting was going to start again. Yeah, that's a great question. My kids in the beginning, especially my son who is older, I think he was four when we separated and is a very sensitive kid, is definitely prone to picking up signals that if we're not getting along or if the atmosphere is turning 
toxic. And so that to me is a good incentive to check myself and behave. I think by the time we actually went away together, we had a really good track record of going to things together, of having these family dinners, of spending extended periods of time together, nowhere near that length, but, but decent chunks of time where we both were comfortable with each other and interacting well. So I think by the time we went away, the kids were not concerned about that. At least that was my impression. So you acted like you were able to act like grown-ups. You didn't get back into the, the other, the bad stuff. So you could, and I guess, you know, what I hear after reading the article and talking to you, I guess you really do or you've really focused on the family and the children. Rather than your relationship, what becomes really important is both of your relationships with your kids and creating a different kind of family afterwards. Uh, uh, is that do you think is that true that's that's absolutely true and i think for anybody trying this kind of thing one one method that i found helpful was going through all of the friction points and partings of the ways that we'd had in the past particularly on vacation what are the tension points what are the things that make us argue and planning in advance to head those off so that those situations wouldn't arise there was a lot of thought and planning that went into it, and I found that to be very helpful. It was a template in my mind. We talked about it in advance, and we were able to pretty much stick to the routine that we set out. Do you think, Laura, that it would be possible, and I'm not sure what situation you were in, but let, for those who, let's say, are in another relationship, what happens if, say, one of the the ex-partners or is in another relationship with someone else or both are, how do you, can you do this or how would you do this? That is such a great question. And, and I, we're not far enough along for me to have answered it, but I can tell you I had dinner the other night with some friends who are older. They're both on their second marriage. They have grown children and we were looking through their wedding album and in the wedding album were both of their former spouses and then their new partners and, one of them had a child who was grown, who had someone who she was separated from, and then her new partner. And it was just this giant family picture of all of these people coming together to celebrate this second marriage, bringing their former spouses and partners. And that seems ideal to me as a goal. I don't know if in my own life if that is remotely possible, but clearly some people are able to do it. I guess you have to know yourself, you have to know your spouse, understand your own family dynamics, uh, and as you say, whether you, one, you know, whether this is a possibility for you, your partner, and your children. Um, I guess there are a lot of factors you have to consider, but it's an option. And I think one of the things that comes out of your article is there are options. Somehow, divorce was always defined as, you know, a fractured family, divorce, and divorce, all divorces are the same. I think that's a message that we've had. Happy families aren't all the same, although they're different and they, you know, have different kinds of relationships. But what you're saying is, hey, divorced families also can be very, very different and there are different options. I think that's really important to recognize. Yeah, I do too. And I also think you're absolutely right that the most helpful fulcrum is to keep the focus as much as you can on your children. So 
for example, if you're thinking about their wedding or their high school graduation, what do you want them to remember? You want them to remember the gloriousness of the moment and the achievement. You don't want them to think back and think of you and your ex fuming, hostile, making things uncomfortable for everyone else. It's actually a pretty selfish act to spoil those rites of passage for your own children. And if you can bear that in mind, I think it's a great motivator to try to work with your former partner so that when you come together on those occasions and other occasions, it's really about celebrating your children and not about reliving the worst moments of your marriage, which is, which is over and a thing of the past. Yeah, I think that's very true, and I can just give you an example of one of one of my one of my sons uh, admitted to me a couple of years ago. My kids now are in their thirties, but when I got divorced, uh, because there was such animosity, and we were kind of I don't want to say vying for the children, but we wanted to spend as much cho- uh, time with with the boys, each one of us did, that uh, the circus was in town, the Barnum and Bailey Circus, and it was not quite in town. It was about an hour away from where we lived at the time. And I got so excited, and I said to my son, I have tickets to the circus, and, you know, I forgot what day it was, like, say, on a Wednesday night, and we were going to go. And, well, his father had done the same thing, and he was so afraid to tell either one of us that we both were taking him to the circus that he actually went, like, on a Wednesday and a Thursday, and never told us that he had, you know, he had gone twice because he didn't want to cause any friction between the two of us. This is exactly what you don't want to do is what I'm saying. But I really never knew about it until years later. That is such a poignant story. Yeah. I think what it tells me is that there aren't, as you say, enough templates. And I, I think the problem is when you're getting a divorce, there is this sense that you're, you're breaking your family that is going to be sort of permanently ugly and in pieces. And there's some shame associated with that and not a lot of positive role models to look to. My family was tremendously supportive, but there was no one around me who had gone through a similar experience, at least certainly not anybody I wanted to emulate. And so you do have to find this new way. It's hard. Uh, that's true, and it, you do. You have to find a new way and find your own way. And I think one thing that you also said in the article, which I did identify as well with, you know, you have a very competitive family. I mean, you know, you tackle a problem, you stick with it, you don't let go, and until you resolve the problem, uh, you don't leave it. And so, kind of this, well, you're the first one getting divorced, or I was in my situation in my immediate family. It's like I'm, I'm giving up. You know, I come from a competitive family as well, and boy, I don't want to give up. Um, so I think you have to look at it not as giving up, but going on. I mean, it, it, if something's not working, you don't keep doing it over and over again, and, and kind of look at it through a different filter, look at the divorce through a different filter. I think that's right, and also you have to get to a point where you realize that you've done what you can and you need to be able to forgive yourself, which can be very hard in a family where divorce isn't the norm. There aren't any templates. For me, my sort of moment where I kind of broke through my guilt and and shame about it was that I went to see the judge who had married us, who I had actually clerked for out of law school. This is someone who I love and admire more than anyone but my, but my dad, certainly any man that I admire more than my dad. And I was very hesitant to tell him, but I felt that I, that I should. 
And he was someone who, who is still married to the same person, has been for 60 years. And I went to see him, and we had a long conversation, and he asked me some very tough questions about it, the whole decision. And then at the end, he said, do you believe that you've tried everything you possibly can to save your marriage and that there is nothing left for you to do? And I had this moment where I scrolled through in my mind all of the efforts of the past year and the lack of forward progress. And I took a deep breath and I said, yes, I do. And he sort of nodded and said, okay. And that I felt this moment of absolution that I really felt in my heart that I had done everything that I could and that it was time to forgive myself and move on. Yeah. But what a wise man, I mean, to have access to someone like that and to, to be able to sit down and talk to him. I mean, we don't all have that, and, and you know, that's such a positive experience, I guess. I, I think also there's more, credi- there's more acceptance. I don't want to say credibility. There's more acceptance for people who stay in a marriage who are unhappy, who they themselves will admit that they're unhappy and will stay in marriages for 20 or 30 years um, or more, and that's okay, uh, but it's not okay to get divorced and even go on to a much better relationship, let's say, with another partner. But um, somehow I think that stigma still prevails. You stay in a marriage at all costs, no matter what, even if it's affecting the children in a negative way. That's true, unfortunately. And what I find interesting about that is I don't believe in many cases it is good for your children because if you're making each other miserable, you're not going to be able to hide that from the people who are closest to you and live with you every day, and those people are your children. So I could feel the toxic environment having an effect on our son, and I knew it was only going to get worse. Um, And it may be that some people are better at cabining it off, but certainly for me, I felt that it was not profoundly not in my children's best interest to try to white-knuckle it out until they went to college. Yeah. Well, families are systems, you know, from the social work perspective. And if one or part of the system or more isn't working, it's not working for the whole system. And um, I think, I, you know, if I always tried to keep that in mind, I had friends, I'm of a, probably the next generation from you, and those friends that stayed together in marriages for 30 you know, even 40 years eventually ended up getting divorced. But, um, and for themselves, that was a good thing. But having stayed in those kinds of marriages really took its toll on the children. And you could see, and, and it, you know, it does play itself out, not in a good way, um, because the system isn't working. So, I think, unfortunately, a lot of times that's right. Yeah. So what's, you know, what do you think about trends? I mean, now you wrote this article. What was the response? This is an article, New York Times. Did you get responses from people who were agreed, disagreed, a variety of different kinds of reactions or what? I got an overwhelming amount of responses, and they, they were varied, although they tended to fall into two groups. The first group were people who were critical of the approach and said essentially that, my ex-husband and I were perpetuating kind of myth where we were allowing our children to believe that there was a chance that we would get back together. And then in fact, in the end, this was not going to be good for them, nor would it allow us to move on with our own lives and, and date other people. 
the people who voices criticism said it's not that you should be hostile, but you need to be really separate, cordial, but rather cold. And so that was one kind of camp of responses. Another camp of responses, which I found very affirming, were people who were ahead of me in time, who had practiced the same approach and found that it had been tremendously successful. So I would hear from moms and dads whose children were graduating from high school or college telling me how well it had worked out and how happy they were and also that their kids were. And many of these people who wrote to me had, had found other people to be with, had gotten remarried. So I found those responses to be affirming and made me feel much better and less kind of alone in this choice because, as it turns out, there's this whole silent community who's doing the same thing. We just don't hear from them. You know, taking the first example that you gave or the first reaction of people who uh, said it was, uh, well, valid, well, reaffirming what you're doing, um, like you, you took a vacation together, are there limits to that? Um, limits in terms of like, do you, you know, take all your family vacation? That's the extreme, but so that you're not, you know, lim- limiting the time together, uh, maybe a vacation once a year or, uh, you know, what would be some of the limitations so that kids don't feel, I mean, there is that thinking, especially, I suppose it depends on how old they are and how much you can explain things to them, but there is the potential for a child to think, well, there's hope, there's always hope mom and dad are going to get back together and making it difficult for each one to get a new partner. So are there limitations on, on how much time you can spend together? I think there absolutely are. You're right. It's important for both reasons. If you spend all of your vacations and all of your free time together, then you're essentially staying married, just sleeping in different houses. So I think that it's important to place limitations, both for the children's expectations and for your own life, because you're absolutely correct that you're never going to meet anybody else so long as you're spending all of your vacations with your ex-partner and all of your free time with your ex-partner. It's important to set some boundaries. Yeah. And when you set those boundaries, do you talk to the children? I, I mean, I, you know, if it's a three-year-old, it obviously is different than a six-year-old, than a 12-year-old, than a 15-year-old. But do you sit down and explain all of what your intentions are in terms of your, you know, your, your family um, in this kind of a circumstance? Do you talk to them or what do you do? Well, what would you suggest doing? I think it depends on the ages of the children. So when we separated, our kids were four and two, and we went to see uh, a counselor, someone who was professionally trained, and she told us the right words to say and also words to avoid. And so we, we explained what was happening, but I don't think it really penetrated. And then over the coming months, questions and comments would kind of trickle in, and so I'd be answering them on an ad hoc basis. At this point, they're four and six, and a little bit more able to sit through a slightly longer explanation of an ongoing plan, but really they don't have a a sense of time in the same way that adults do. I think it's a more complicated, longer conversation when they're, say, 10 and 12, and they can be kind of present in the moment and, and understand what you're actually telling them. I don't think you have to share every detail of what you're doing, but I do think you can convey the clear message that this is family time, this is important to us, we're going to have a wonderful vacation together as a family, and then 
you know, on Thanksgiving you'll be with dad and at Christmas you'll be with mom and we'll move along on that schedule. Now, we've been talking about the children, are talking a lot about the children and their response and reaction, what you should do as a parent. But now, what about your family and social work vernacular, your family of origin? You said they were always supportive, your siblings, uh, your, your family, but how did they react specifically to this kind of uh, behavior after the divorce, spending time together? Um, I think you point out that none of them had been divorced, so they really didn't couldn't experience or know what you're going through necessarily. They could empathize. So what did they support you? It was interesting. I have a big family, and they essentially divided down the middle in the same way that the commentators did. <laughs> so they really <laughs> reflected the, the two different camps of responses. Some people in my family thought that this was a great thing to try and that we were doing something creative and hopefully very good. And then some people thought this was not a good idea that it was going to send the wrong message to the kid and also kind of um, push back any forward progress in our own lives. So they really reflected kind of the greater community and their reaction. Now that said, they were still supportive and they certainly didn't make me feel badly. They were just honestly expressing either support or skepticism. So they were there for you, but obviously they came from their own emotional places, and it's interesting that they reflect the greater society, right? Uh, so what, what's the message we want to, we have a few minutes left, what's the message we want to leave with people, with, with our, you know, uh, besides, they should read your article. If you haven't read the article, the New York Times article, uh, you can, uh, where can we, do you have the, the, um, uh, so it ran, I think it ran on September the 27th, um, yeah. on a Sunday in the Modern Love column of the New York Times. It did. So and if you just so, go to the New York yeah. Times and you give the date and you get from Divorce of Fractured Beauty and your name, Lara Bazelon, you're going to be able to access the article because I really, you know, I really recommend reading it. So what's, ne- um, what's next? For articles, you've written so many different articles about parenting, about, you know, before the show we were talking about your, when you got pregnant. Um, you're very prolific. Uh, so <laughs> what are, <laughs> what's the next topic? Well, it's funny because after I got these responses, and many of them were direct emails from people who were going through what I had gone through when I first separated or trying to make that decision and wondering how to proceed, how to go forward, I got so many inquiries that I thought, well, maybe I'll write just a shorter piece with some specific pieces of advice. And so I did do that, and hopefully, I'm hoping it will, it will get published, but it did grow out of what I wrote for the New York Times and just the, the comments and the questions and the advice-seeking that came after that. Yeah, I think, Laura, I mean, you, have, you know, when you read this, because you are a young family, people, you know, it would be nice to know the evolution. How does this work out or how did this play out or how is it playing out for you, as you say, and then you can give uh, advice. But it would be really interesting, I think, to continue kind of on this, uh, you know, sort of vein of writing about uh, the, the different options after divorce, which I, I think is, is really critical. And unfortunately, it's always going to be there. Somehow, I don't think the divorce rate is, oh, I don't know. It doesn't seem to be getting too much better. 
but no, it's not. I mean, the one thing I would leave your listeners with is is this. I don't think it's a linear process, and I don't want to give the impression that everything's perfect now because there are dark moments and days when I'm just as angry or scared as I was in the beginning. They're just much fewer and farther in between. So when I feel inclined to kind of give in to my worst impulses and send an email or initiate some kind of argument, what I found works for me is that I have this picture of my, of my two children, and actually my ex-husband took it, and I look at it, and I've really kind of burned it into my brain, this picture of them. And when I feel inclined to do something that I know I'm going to regret, that's going to set back the progress that my ex-husband and I have made, and his face is kind of foremost in my mind, I allow his face to go out of focus, and I put that picture in its place in sharp granular focus and it really reprioritizes and resettles me and recommits me to the path that we've chosen to take going forward. That is great, great advice and uh, we're going to say goodbye on that note. Lara Bazelon and read her New York Times article from Divorce, a Fractured Beauty. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning. It was really great talking to you. You're so welcome. We're going to take a short break right now. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. There are over 140 million products manufactured worldwide. It is impossible to know the ingredients in these products, especially those made overseas. Stan Salat, creator of the HSF Mark and the Counterfeit Mark Alliance, is the host of People to People, working together for your safety. Stan believes in our right to know the type and amount of hazardous materials in consumer products and whether they are counterfeit. Find out how you can protect yourself every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. Welcome back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, Joining me this morning is author 
University of North Carolina faculty member, John J.B. Anderson, Ph.D. He's author of The Mediterranean Way of Eating, Evidence for Chronic Disease Prevention and Weight Management. Uh, Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, John. Well, thank you very much. I'm glad to be on. It's great to have you on the show. You have co-authored a book. This is the book, The Mediterranean Way of Eating. And apparently you maintain that scientific evidence validates the idea that a plant-based dietary pattern, such as the Mediterranean way of eating, promotes health and also plays an important role in risk reduction and prevention of chronic diseases, such as obesity, type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular diseases, and certain cancers. Very impressive. Um, Let's start, I want to talk about how the Mediterranean pattern of eating does this, but first, maybe, John, you could describe to us exactly what is the Mediterranean way of of eating. You know, it's a plant-based dietary pattern, but what does that mean? What is it exactly? Uh, Yes, Uh, my co-author and I, Marilyn Sparling, have come up with uh, a background um, on this, this diet, which is consumed in various country, so it's not a single diet. It's really more of a pattern uh, of the Mediterranean Sea area. Uh, We think primarily about Greece, Italy, France, and Spain probably when we talk about it, but also the eastern countries of the Mediterranean have have their own varieties of the Mediterranean diet, and they're all based on a high-consumption pattern of plant foods, fruits and vegetables, olive oil, legumes, and so on. Plus, uh, fish is another component and other seafoods. And also, we generally talk about uh, the plant foods as being so important. And that's that's true of, of, of good diets pretty much throughout the world. Lots of plant foods because they provide a number of the ingredients that are important, nutrients and phytochemicals. And also, they provide a good balance of uh, all of the macronutrients, that is, the energy sources like carbohydrates and fats and uh, sufficient amounts of protein. So, uh, John, what about, okay, you mentioned, okay, fruits, vegetables, plant food, olive oil, seafood. You didn't mention chicken and you didn't mention beef. Are those out? Uh, No, they're not out. There's really nothing excluded in this type of a diet. It's the amount of quantity and uh, serving sizes. So uh, the reduction of of, uh, animal products is definitely uh, something that occurs typically, although you're not excluded from it. And one of the big big issues of of, uh, having plant foods a variety of plant foods is they provide so many of these nutrients along with the energy and protein and uh, also the phytochemicals. Uh, so it's a matter of getting a variety of foods, getting a balance of the um, energy components, or, or carb- high carbohydrates and fats, and then having uh, relatively smaller sizes of, of uh, proportions of food, plus not having frying and not having so much processed food, especially packaged foods. So it doesn't mean you exclude everything, but you try to reduce all these others. And going on to a Mediterranean type of diet really means changing what you buy in the stores, what you purchase, and then to some extent how you prepare it. And if one of the the standards of of a diet is is a so-called salad, like a Greek salad, 
which contains a lot of plant sources, plus some cheese. And uh, cheeses are, are generally acceptable, uh, and so is yogurt, although regular milk is not consumed very much in such countries uh, of the Mediterranean. So there are lots of, lots of foods that can be consumed, and beef is consumed by some people to some, uh, to some extent, but not, not like we do in the United States, especially in the Midwestern part of the U.S. where beef is so strong. Uh, but uh, meats are acceptable. Chicken, so what we're, going, we're talking about not only what you eat, but sort of how you eat it, what you do with it, and at the same time, how much of it you eat. Uh, this seems to be the problem with the American diet. I mean, it seems to me, I just read something recently that says that we are spending billions of dollars in our healthcare systems on diabetes and that has the potential to even bankrupt our, our healthcare system. So apparently, well, as Americans, it doesn't seem like we're following this Mediterranean diet as you describe it, which doesn't sound that complicated. All these foods are available in the grocery store. You don't have to go home and fry up the fish. You can steam it or bake it or whatever. But we don't seem to be doing that. It seems that we're not doing that. We're kind of doing the opposite. So why is that? And why aren't we, what's, why aren't we adopting this Mediterranean way of eating? Which, and it, well, it sounds good, too, in terms of taste. Uh, yes, it is, because it usually has a lot of spices and other components of the diet, like onions and garlic, and, and that help, help in, in this regard. Well, one of the issues is availability of foods that are that are fresh fruits and vegetables for example and in a lot of inner cities they're not easily available by in uh, markets uh, that's been established in, in recent years so people who have a low income level often don't get opportunities of course they have to learn a little bit about how to prepare foods in a healthy way but uh, part of it is economics uh, you know, we have about 10% of our population or thereabouts that's, that's uh, really poor, very under, undernourished in, in many respects. And so for them, it's, it's not easy. And who, who provides the, the wealth in our country? Well, a lot of wealthy people have diabetes. They have obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and so on, because they do overconsume. So overconsumption, as you say, is really a serious problem. Uh, they, the, most of these people who have adequate income level uh, tend to avoid the, the good, the good way of eating. So that's a problem. We, we can't. I don't know. I don't know how to intercept in those uh, among those people. Yeah, I, I think it's been easy. Uh, I don't know if it's easy, but you know, we say, "Oh, yes, people." You know, people, poor people in our country don't have access to the food, true, and they don't have the monies to buy the good vegetables and fruits. But that's just a, a, a small. I don't know what the percentage is exactly, but we are oh, a middle class society, and we are still overweight, obese, and subject to all of these diseases that we, I mentioned in the beginning, uh, and that you say the traditional Mediterranean eating. Uh, not only promotes health, will help prevent some of these diseases. Maybe we should say, how specifically we're trying to convince people to eat this way. Let's talk about it. How does eating this way specifically prevent some of the diseases that I mentioned? You, uh, you know, cardiovascular disease, let's say, uh, by eating the Mediterranean way. And you say in your book that scientific evidence that we've accumulated over the years says it does help if you eat this way to prevent cardiovascular disease. How does that work? 
Well, yes, there, there are a number of mechanisms. Uh, one of them, we need to talk about the fats a little bit and the distribution of the fats. Uh, most of the diets contain both saturated, excuse me, all the saturated fatty acids, monounsaturated fatty acids, and polyunsaturated fatty acids. The big benefit of the Mediterranean type of diet, especially from olive oil, is that it gets quite a bit of the monos and the polys and less of the saturated fats. And from the, all the plant foods, we get a lot more of the fiber associated with the carbohydrates. Uh, and uh, all of these do benefit and slow down digestion, uh, improve the lipid profile in our, in our, in our bodies, that is the high-density and, and uh, low-density fatty acids, also the triglyceride levels. So these all have a benefit, despite the fact that the Mediterranean diets are not really um, low-carbohydrate diets or low-fat diets. They're kind of moderate in all respects, but it's because of the components uh, that are present, plus the phytochemicals that are so rich in these diets that help in terms of of preventing and, and so on. So the whole grains uh, that provide a lot of the fiber, uh, the olive oil that provides a lot of phytochemicals and other plant foods that provide fiber and, and phytochemicals all have benefits with respect to the way our body responds in terms of its our lipid profile, our body weight. So these tend to be a little bit better as far as weight control goes. And uh, in general, it's a, it's a healthier diet for a reason that it has a lot of balance. A lot of food. John, you know, I'm going to interrupt you a minute because as you're describing it, and obviously if one reads your book, the description is there as well, but you're a researcher, you're a scientist, you have a PhD, and yes, it makes sense, but how do you, you know, most of us, just the general population, you know, have difficulty really understanding that or putting had that knowledge into everyday practice. How do we, I, I keep going back to that because I think what you're saying is really important and we need to head in that direction. But from a practical point of view, telling, you know, just a lay person like myself, how are you going to convince me yeah, it, it, to go when I go to the grocery store and buy the, buy the olive oil, um, which is maybe a little bit more expensive or, um, you know, how, yeah. how can I really in the in the immediate in the present time relate that to to good health. <laughs> yes, well you're 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 right. The practical aspects of this are are very important and uh this is where Marilyn uh Sparling, my co-author was has been so helpful. Uh one of the things that we recommend She's a is, nutritionist, right? Yes, yeah, she's a dietitian yes. nutritionist and uh, pra- practiced uh, her her profession at Duke University Medical Center and now is retired. But uh, she's had a lot of experience in this area, like, like uh, I have on, on the more scientific side. But what we recommend in our book is that we have a fairly high consumption of the monounsaturated fatty acids and, and the uh, polyunsaturated fatty acids and less of the saturated fatty acids. So that, that alone is beneficial. It's not that they're all bad, but the balance of them uh, from the Mediterranean type of di- type diet is certainly much better than it is from a classical uh, from a classical diet, and, and also 
the, the fruits, vegetables, and legumes, you know, are, are generally quite balanced. They provide all the nutrient, the micronutrients, the vitamins and minerals that are needed. Okay, so that's important just to make sure you get plenty of them. So the other other thing is is you need to kind of know some of the ways of preparation of foods, and and uh, these are these are things that are are definitely practical, and many people just fry most everything or buy fried foods. Well, that's that's kind of a no no in a way. It's not an absolutely forbidden issue, but it's it's not a better way to go. So you recognize that early and said you you don't don't do that, and. Uh, the other food groups that are, are important, of course, are the nuts and seeds that are, that are healthy besides the fish and seafood. And then trying to have some poultry is okay, eggs are okay uh, in reasonable amounts. And uh, turkey is also a, a good source of, uh, of, of a, an animal product. And as I mentioned before, cheeses and yogurts are certainly acceptable. Uh, not milk so much, although it's not a negative about milk. I think uh, what but, I hear you uh, saying, uh, you know, when I hear you describing what you can eat, it's a lot of food you can eat. Sometimes when you hear the word diet, you think of uh, restrictions, what you can't eat. Well, you're describing most things <clears throat> what we can eat. And, uh, for instance, like you mentioned, nuts. I mean, you can buy a bag of nuts rather than a bag of potato chips. or, exactly. or Yeah, and it's just as easy to eat them, and they're just as portable, and you can bring them anywhere, and they're obviously a lot more healthy and tasty. Uh, I think sometimes Americans, uh, and I think, you know, having traveled a lot around the world, I get very sort of hooked into not being very creative about their food, either, as you say, preparing it at home in interesting ways or just trying out new kinds kinds of food, and if we can kind of get into that mindset, I think that would be helpful, too, in terms of us trying to eat the Mediterranean way. Um, I mean, I think those are two areas we could work on. You're absolutely right, uh, Catherine. The preparation of foods requires a lot of kind of skill, actually, and uh, a lot of people don't learn those skills early on. Mostly men don't learn them easily. Uh, they can, but they don't normally. And uh, so we, we need to all learn better how to improve our diets by adding herbs, spices, garlic, onions, and other things like that to improve our, our taste. Uh, they don't have to be so hot in terms of hot peppers and so on, but some people do like their food prepared that way. Uh, but, you know, here yeah. we are, and the most popular shows on television, is like, or one of them is anyway, is the Food Network. So what are we doing? We have all of these shows. I mean, that's really an opportunity to learn how to cook well and differently and take an opportunity to kind of see and experience new kinds of foods. Uh, and those are – people do watch – I mean, the Food Network is very, very popular. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. It is, it is popular, and uh, they have some interesting choices. But many of them require a bit more preparation than most people want to do, and I think that's part of the issue. So some people prefer to buy something in a package, maybe even a frozen package, as opposed to going to the difficulty of preparing a meal uh, the way the way it's presented in a lot of these shows. So well, you have of, uh, sample recipes of, in your book, I, and yeah. so uh, that that people can start with that if they want to. Uh, well, can we talk about diet and cancer? Well, how did, can sure. can you prevent uh, sure. cancer well, by eating the Mediterranean way? 
Well, yes. One thing is our book has lots of practical information and, and tips. So that's, that's important, um, and you've mentioned that, but I wanted to reemphasize that there are our appendices and so on. But getting back to the cancer issue, uh, this diet is, is somewhat of an anti-cancer diet, just like it's an anti-cardiovascular disease diet, and just like it's an anti-diabetes diet. And all of these seem to relate to the fact that there are a variety of foods, the distribution of the energy components, including the fatty acids, and all the nutrients, micronutrients, vitamins and minerals, plus the phytochemicals, are fairly rich in this, in this type of diet. So all of these seem to benefit these many diseases, including perhaps brain diseases also with aging and, and so on. Are you and talking about dementia or Alzheimer's? Yes, yes. both of those. Maybe even uh, other diseases, maybe even osteoporosis a little bit because of all these components. So it isn't, it isn't as if it's all calcium and vitamin D for preventing uh, osteoporosis, but just having a good diet and so on. The other factor is that many of these Mediterranean diets uh, that people use are eaten among family members in a, in, a, in a setting which is slower, more relaxed, not so fast as we do in the U.S. in terms of our eating. So it, it's a matter of also saying, well, I want to have a reasonably good meal and I want to sit down and enjoy it and not have a lot of interference with it. So, so do you find aspect. in families, in terms of the, you, you know, this is an evidence, scientific evidence-based diet that it promotes good health, do you look at families and see in those kinds of families that you're describing where people are eating this kind of a diet, the Mediterranean diet, maybe in a more low-stress eating situation, that they are healthier as a family, I mean, statistically, than other families who don't eat this way? That's a great question. I have not actually seen data on that issue, uh, but that's a good one. Uh, yeah. it's, it's talked about a lot in terms of, of the nutrition field, but I don't know if there's really good data for it. Well, that's a good yeah. study. You should do yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> that is a good one. Most, most yeah. people in nutrition focus on, on volume or food amounts. Uh, now, a lot of people do anyway, uh, and, and the benefits of not eating so fast because it allows for slower digestion and uh, a little more easier utilization of these components once they get into the body. What about, because, you know, we have a few minutes left, and I want to kind of take this, you know, you have the, one has the opportunity to change their eating habits in their own home, but what happens when you go out, and Americans go out to dinner a lot, uh, or lunch, and what, what do, how can you translate this diet into eating out? Is it easy to do? I mean, is it easy in most restaurants to be able to eat this way or, or it, not? It, it really is. Our book goes into this issue, actually, in some detail. It, it is quite easy to do it. You just have to select, select more plant foods and, and, and not base your plate, so to speak, on, on a meat. Uh, uh, or, or a fish, although you can have them, of course. But uh, it should be rich in the plant foods and the whole grains. And uh, I think everybody can do that. Almost every place offers, restaurants or, or eating establishments offer these. Uh, a little bit of red wine sometimes is also recommended. 
uh, by this diet. One drink a day for women and two drinks a day for men. Uh, it could be other, other forms of alcohol, but, but definitely low amounts. And uh, low to moderate uh, is the rule. And uh, people can buy uh, almost any kind of salad components everywhere, even in fast food places now. You can typically buy salad components, put them together. I think one of the issues with me, and I think that's true, you Mm -hmm. can get the fish, you can get the the vegetables and the fruits and the Mediterranean diet. The problem is, I think, in a lot of restaurants, in my experience, is that they they coat the food with something. There's always some kind of a sauce. So I've got in the habit of just saying, you know, sauce on the side, you know, whatever it is. And, and the waiter or waitress will try to convince you that it's very light, but usually it's not very light. It's pretty heavy. So, right. um, yeah, mm-hmm. for me, you're, you're that's... You're quite right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, food tends to be doctored quite a bit in places, and... Uh, you need to get it as plain as possible and as fresh as possible. Uh, having sauces, and many of them are, are, are quite rich in sugar, actually, uh, but having sauces, uh, uh, you know, should be kept to a minimum. I quite agree with you. Uh, I think that also becomes a habit, you know, and a habit is really important if you get used to at home and when you eat out to not have sauces that are filled with sugar and salt, which are the culprits. Mm-hmm. After a while, if you keep doing that, when, when you taste those sauces, it doesn't taste good. It, beca- it overwhelms your taste buds. So it takes, no. it, your, it has, your tastes have to evolve, I guess is what I'm saying. Uh, well, to some extent that's correct. But, you know, when you have herbs and spices or, and garlic and onions and leeks and other things in these uh, in these these foods, including the dressings, it does help to have them. Uh, and a little bit of salt's okay, but not a lot. And uh, we, we definitely are high in salt consumption in the United States and most countries. I don't know whether that's always so bad, but, uh, you know, from the medical perspective, people definitely recommend lower, lower intakes of salt. We don't know all the answers to that issue. It's a, it's a controversial issue, actually. The salt uh, issue is a. Con- I didn't realize that it was a controversial issue because yes. you do. You hear, you know, no salt, no salt, don't eat salt. Well, you, it, I think, but your whole, uh, you know, your. I think your whole focus has been about balance, isn't it? And portion control, correct. and that in, would involve, I imagine, how much salt you know you're ingesting. Yes, salt, salt. I, I'm not supporting salt really, but it. Uh, we don't. We just don't know all the answers yet about how much we need. You know, there are some recommendations that are very stringent in, in the United States now, but in other places they are not so stringent. So there is, there is this uncertainty about what's best for us. But uh, I'm, I'm agreeing with you. I don't have much salt myself in my diet, and I try to avoid it when I can. Yeah, because you'll get plenty of it anyway. Right. Well, we only have about a minute left, so I want to, the book, it's John J.B. Anderson, uh, and the title of his book is The Mediterranean Way of Eating, Evidence for Chronic Disease Prevention and Weight Management. There's so much going on in the book. So a uh, website that we can go to, John, to get more information about the book and or you? Uh, yes, there is a website. It's um www.crcpress.com. Okay. Great having you on the show today. 
Yes, thank you very much. Yeah, lots of information and lots of practical information, and hopefully we'll head in that direction in terms of the way we eat. Um, John J.B. Anderson, The Mediterranean Way of Eating. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. 